Um, so we're continuing our speaker, our summer speaker series as uh, Pastor DL is out on sabbatical, and uh, we have the pleasure of having uh, Pastor Chris Ogden here, um, who joins us from First Baptist Church of Orlando. Um, he will be at the uh, Horizons West campus, uh, which will be launching shortly. Um, and so he has a he has a passion for uh, for for church planting. Um, he's here with his wife Nikki. Um, they are parents to uh, three beautiful children: uh, Addison, uh, Olivia, and Jonah. And so God bless you for having three kids. I can barely handle two myself, um, but please give them a round of applause and welcome them to Harvest. Um. I want to say thanks for uh, having us here. Um, I, I told a group of people earlier this morning, I said, you know, um, I'm, I'm so excited to be coming to Horizon West area. Uh, the, the campus that we're going to have is called Horizon West Church, but I'm really even more excited about the Horizon West churches uh, because God is doing something in, in this area, um, and you guys really are some of the forerunners of a community that's going to be exploding over the next 10 to 20 years, and the Lord graciously saw fit to bring you here uh, when he did, um, and to plant yourself, and just seeing God's favor on this congregation. I had a chance to meet DL as, I, uh, as we look toward launching campus here. I said, you know, one of the first things I want to do uh, is get into uh, uh, the churches and, and meet the pastors of these churches so we can collaborate together and see kingdom growth happen in Horizon West. And DL was one of those guys that just right off the bat, we met at Starbucks. Apparently, he has a lot of meetings at Starbucks. I came to find out. Um, but uh, just immediately made a connection and could tell that this was a, an authentic brother in Christ. And, uh, and in fact, that meeting, he said, hey, by the way, would you like to, to preach at our church? I said, yeah, I'd love to do that. Um, and so uh, just honored to, to stand here kind of in his place um, this weekend. And Eugene and the team, thanks for being so hospitable um, and working everything out for us. My wife recently, my wife is down here uh, with me, Nikki, and she has recently gotten into uh, gardening. Any gardeners or green thumbs in the, in the room? Yeah, and they're excited about it. They're like, yeah. Um, totally not a gardener, uh, but, but she has gotten into that, and so we've got now a little urban garden going on. It's got, uh, I think, cucumbers and cilantro, and there's one more. Spinach? I had no idea we were growing spinach. Okay. Um, so we have these things growing in our, like our pool deck or whatever, um, and our kids are into it. They check every day to see if the things have come up. You know, it's like it takes time, you know, but, but they do this. Well, earlier this year, I, I came across uh, an interesting tree, an interesting uh, uh, plant or tree called the Chinese bamboo tree. And the Chinese bamboo tree is really interesting in the plant world for the reason that when you plant it, you don't see anything for the entire first year uh, come to fruition. In fact, at the end of year two, you still haven't seen anything. And even in year three and four, you still don't see anything. And so uh, you have planted the seed, but you don't see anything come to fruition for four entire years. And then in year five of the Chinese bamboo tree, in as little as six weeks, it can grow 80 feet tall. Which begs the question, you know, what, what was happening in years one, two, three, and four when you planted that seed and it looked like nothing was taking place. Every day, if you went out to check on your Chinese bamboo tree, you would see nothing for four entire years. And so you wonder, you know, does that seed just, just sit there and just do nothing for four years until all of a sudden it explodes with growth? Well, no. What's happening is that that seed has died and has opened up and has begun to build a root system under the ground beneath the surface so that when the growth comes, it's prepared and ready for it. I want to submit to you this morning that I think God's promises come to us most often as seeds. They're not 
things that we immediately get to harvest or cultivate or, or, or God doesn't say it on one day and we receive it the next day, but instead he allows for a period of waiting to take place. And it's during the waiting that God prepares us and builds our root system and readies us for the work that he has for us to do. In just the short time we have this morning, I, I want to look at uh, uh, the life of David and some things that took place. And we're not going to cover, you know, everything that happened and, and, and all the great stories of David's life, but we'll hit a few of them. Uh, if you know the story, you know that David was anointed uh, as a young boy to be the king of Israel. Uh, Saul, the first king, had um, really turned away from the Lord. He had demonstrated a lack of faith, and God said very plainly about Saul, I have rejected him. And so he sends the prophet Samuel to a little town of Bethlehem to the home of a man named Jesse. And there, seven strong, strapping, good-looking brothers are passed over until this young boy, David, who scholars tell us was probably as young as 10 to 15 years old, comes before Samuel, and the Lord says, this is the one. And so David is anointed to be king of Israel as a young boy. And then just a few years later, uh, he was not yet even 16 years old, David finds himself on a battlefield, and he's going against a giant named Goliath with a sling and a stone, and you know the story, takes the giant down. And this was a great thing. Uh, this earned David a lot of fame throughout the nation of Israel. In fact, it's one of the ways that God was beginning to fulfill his purposes for David. But there was one kind of negative side effect to it. And that's that the king began to be threatened by this boy David. In fact, in Israel, they would sing a song. They would say, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, if you're the most powerful man in the nation... And people are saying, essentially, that a young boy is greater than you are. That might get to you, right? And it got to Saul. And so what we're going to see is a long period of waiting between the promise that David received as a young boy and the fulfillment that he would see later in life. And I just want to give you three principles for as we wait on the fulfillment of God's promises. The first is this. Don't go alone. There's an African proverb that says, if you want to go uh, fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. A few years back, I, I ran the Savage Race. Anybody run a, a Savage or a Tough Mudder or Rugged Maniac, any of that? Yeah, you, can, you don't have to be sheepish. You can put it right up there. Yeah. Well, if, you're, if, you, if you know, uh, you know the, the drill, you kind of like train for a while. You got to get kind of the cardio down. You got to get the upper body strength because you're doing, you know, uh, kind of like monkey bar type things and you're climbing walls and you're jumping over fire and you're crawling under barbed wire. It's really crazy. Some of you are like, I don't have any idea. Garden is way easier than that. I'll just do the gardening. But, but, but I did this, and I have a, a brother-in-law, Brian. He was a college baseball player. I'm like, Brian, let's do the Savage Race together. 6.9 miles, 25 obstacles. Let's just beast mode it, and let's do it. And he's like, all right. So Brian's a great athlete, pretty fit. The problem is Brian didn't think he needed to train for the Savage Race. I, on the other hand, knew that this scrawny white boy needed to train. And so I began running every day, running and running, running, and doing my push-ups and doing all this stuff. And so we start running, and like three and a half miles in, I'm just, I'm feeling good. All of a sudden, I start to realize that Brian is starting to, to drift, right? He's starting to get a little further back. So I'm like, come on, Brian, come on, man, you know. But by mile four, mile five, you know, he's really holding me back. Like, like I am not able to run full speed because of Brian. And so we, you know, it's like, okay, you know, we get to the end, and it was really unsatisfying because I, I wanted to kind of test my own limits, and I felt like I didn't. I was like, I didn't plan on walking some of this, this course. 
So I had the idea. We finished the race, and I think Brian was throwing up afterward. He was just not doing well. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to run the race again. But this time, I'm doing it by myself. I'm going to enter a competitive heat. I'm going to get to the front of the line, and I'm just going to go all out and see how far I can go. So I did, and guess what? I went faster by myself than I did with Brian. But the problem was there are certain obstacles where you can uh, use the strength of the people that you're running with to help you out, to get over a wall or to climb something. And I had been exerting all of my strength on the obstacles alone. And so even though my uh, fitness was in check and I, was, I had the, the lung support, I found myself getting to one of the last obstacles that required strength, and I had no one to help me and no, nothing left in the tank, and I did not finish the obstacle. And because I had run in a competitive heat, I actually had to surrender my finisher bracelet, which is the most emasculating thing you could possibly ever do. Like, I paid for the privilege. I'm like, yes, I paid to run this race. Here you go. Um, and, I, and I wasn't able to finish. If you want to go fast, you go alone. But if you want to go far, you go together. In uh, doing some research on this topic, I, I learned that loneliness, loneliness and social isolation are now being considered for inclusion as health epidemics. People that, that study the body and physiology are actually starting to go, you know what, we've noticed that people that do life alone, people that are isolated, people that go alone, they actually aren't living as longer. In fact, one study showed that isolation and loneliness can have a similar health effect as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And most of us would go, man, I wouldn't smoke 15 cigarettes a day. And yet we find ourselves gravitating toward a life of isolation. We start to draw back into ourselves. And maybe there's a temptation or maybe you've had a season in life where you go, you know, I'm just going to, you know, I don't have to go to church every weekend. I don't, I don't really need to, to really be as involved in my house church. I, I can just kind of draw back a little bit. And we start to go alone. When my wife and I were first in Orlando, uh, we were able to go on dates because we didn't have kids, which was kind of nice. And I think that uh, somebody had paid for us to get into Fun Spot because, again, the only way we go on dates is if somebody pays for it. Um, and now also provides babysittings. But, um, but this was before kids, so we go to Fun Spot and we're doing, you know, the, the stuff. And we find ourselves on the, it's called a Ferris wheel, right? The one that goes up and down. And uh, so we're, we're kind of low enough that I can still see the landscape at Fun Spot, and the bumper cars are right next to the Ferris wheel. And I see this, like, nine-year-old boy who's at the bumper cars, and he's just going to town. I mean, like, with a vengeance, just smashing into every car in that entire little arena, and he's just loving it. And I just start laughing out loud because I realize he's the only person in any of the bumper cars. <laughs> All of the rest of them are completely empty. And just like that, I had the thought. I thought, you know, life is better with people in it. Because there, there's certain things, right, that, that just don't make sense to do them alone, like bumper cars or, or like going to a movie or, or like playing dodgeball, right? Like there, there's just some things you need other people in your life for. And guess what? God set it up that way. He set up a system whereby we would need other people. I'm not a big horror movie guy. They just kind of creep us out. In fact, we typically, if somebody talks us into watching one, we end up turning it off. We're like, we just don't do this. But I've seen enough of them to know that there's a basic premise to, to a lot of these horror movies. And in most cases, there's a group of young people, like college or young adult age, or maybe high school. And they're in some, like, really bizarre house in the woods. You don't even know why they're there. And there's a random serial killer that's, like, roaming the woods. 
And then one of that group, usually it's the pretty girl, is like, hey, I'm going to go find some firewood in the forest. I'll be back. And you're like, no, you're not coming back. I know how this goes. You're going to die. Like, this is the end of your story. And the reason is, the moment that you separate yourself from the pack, the moment you, you go in isolation, you become an easy target. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You know the easiest target is for a, for a lion? It's the person who separated themselves from the pack. And the scripture literally says that the enemy is like a lion roaming around looking for the person that he can take out. When you remove yourself from community, when you, when you draw back from fellowship with other believers, you become an easy target. So it's not just a physical health issue. There is a spiritual issue at play when we turn toward loneliness and social isolation. David had someone in his life that kept him from going the journey alone. He was named Jonathan. Listen with me in 1 Samuel chapter 18. I'm going to read uh, just the first five verses here, 1 Samuel chapter 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and he gave it to David and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war, and this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. I think that David knew that if he was going to go far, he needed a friend, and he found a guy named Jonathan. In fact, three times in Scripture it says that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And this is an incredibly unlikely friendship, and here's why. Jonathan is the son of the current king, Saul. David has been anointed to be the next king. Now, in those days, that's not how it worked. In those days, whoever was king handed over the throne to their son, who became king, until he handed over to, their, to his son, who became king. And that's how it went. And if at any point there was a change in that system and somebody from another family became king, their first job was to kill everyone in the other king's line so that there was no threat to the throne. So Jonathan, who is next in line to be the king of Israel, recognizes that though biologically he's destined for the kingship, yet spiritually David has been anointed to be the king. And Jonathan, in an incredible act of faith and friendship, lays down his robe, his belt, his sword, and his armor at the feet of David. Wow. His armor. The thing that would defend him potentially from this probable enemy. He says, no, 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 this isn't an enemy. This is a friend. In fact, this was a friendship that ran so deep that years later, when David was the king of Israel, he, he walks out one day and he says, you know, he's just thinking about Jonathan and how much he loved Jonathan and what a great friend he was. And he says to his servants, hey, is anyone left of the house of Jonathan? I say, actually, there is a, a, a young man named Mephibosheth, and he lives in your kingdom, but he can't walk. He's a cripple. David says, send for him. And so David's men show up at Mephibosheth's house. Now, if I'm Mephibosheth, that's not a good day, right? Like, I'm the grandson of King Saul, and the new king is sending for me. I think this is the end of the road, right? But it's not the end of the road. Instead, Mephibosheth is literally carried by David's men to the table of David and spends the rest of his life living in the palace of the king. 
because of his father, Jonathan, and the connection that he had with David. See, that's friendship. That's the kind of community and relationship that we need. In my life, I've had several Jonathans. I'll, I'll share a few of them with you. I had a, uh, have a friend, Jeremy, uh, who my senior year of high school, when I was losing my mom to breast cancer, uh, Jeremy walked with me on that journey. And the day that she died, he was the first friend to show up. Stayed with me for about 48 hours straight. I mean, we went to, we went to Taco Bell, and we, just, we just, you know, just tried to get my mind off it, and he just was there for me. And about four years later, when we were uh, in college, we came home to, to be with his mom, who was also now dying of cancer. And I was actually in the room with Jeremy as his mom passed away. Just last month, Jeremy's father-in-law uh, died of, of a heart condition. And so immediately, I, I looked for plane tickets and flew to Indiana to be with him. See, that, that's what David and Jonathan friendships look like. They show up. They're there for each other in the times when they're most needed. Another friend, Austin, when I was uh, in school, I met a, a, a kid named Austin, and we initially didn't really like each other, <laughs> um, but we became incredibly close friends. Austin was one of these guys who, at like 19 years old, had kind of this spiritual maturity of a 40-year-old, you know, and he was actually kind of a, a nerd, but, but he was also like deeply in love with Jesus, and um, make sure he doesn't hear this message, <laughs> um, and uh, there was one night I was trying to pray. I'm in my dorm room, and I literally, and, and you know, I'll just confess, maybe you've been there, it just literally felt like my prayers were hitting the ceiling. Like, that's it. Like, God's not hearing this. God's not, not, I know it's not true, but that's what it felt like. So I text Austin. I said, Austin, I'm, I'm struggling tonight, and I'm trying to pray, and I, I feel like I can't even pray. I said, Austin, would you pray for me? And while you're doing that, when we hang up or we get off the phone, I'm just going to get on my knees, and I'm going to open my hands up, and I'm just going to say a very simple prayer. I'm going to say, Lord, Whatever Austin's praying for me, I receive in Jesus' name. And so I got on that posture. I got on my knees. I put my hands up. And just this wave of just grace and the presence of God began washing over me. Now, I couldn't, I couldn't have experienced that on my own. I needed a friend. I think God has set up a system whereby we hit our limitations, and there's this, this thing in our minds that goes, well, if we're followers of Jesus, if we have the Holy Spirit in us, we shouldn't have limitations. So we'll just, we'll just press through. We'll just pound through. I can, I can do this. Just you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And yet there's a truth that runs through Scripture that says, yes, with my spirit and in community. See, even Paul, who said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. He said at times, man, I, I, I need Timothy. I, 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 need, I need Mark. I, I need you to send people. I've, I've, got, I've got Luke with me, but everybody else has left. See, even Paul, so deeply in love with Jesus, so filled with the Spirit, recognized that as an apostle of Jesus, he needed people in his life. And some of you need to find a Jonathan. Others of you need to, to be a Jonathan to someone. You've got people in your life that, You've kind of kept them on the periphery, and you've just kind of been okay with them being an acquaintance. And I would just challenge you, don't go alone. Don't try to do life by yourself. Find people that can come alongside and help you in the journey and that you also can help along the way. Second principle is this. Don't take things into your own hands. Now, we're going to fast forward a little bit to the life of David, and and in this passage we're going to read, he's hiding in a cave, and this Saul, who is the king, has kind of lost it. And he's actually hunting David down like an animal. And David is hiding with some men who have come to David to defend him. And they're hiding in a cave. And all of a sudden they realize that where they're at in the cave, and it's dark and it's hard to see, but they can look down the valley and Saul and his men are camped down there. And David gets an idea. Listen to what the passage says. 1 Samuel 26, 
verses 6 through 12. I think it'll also be on the screens here. 1 Samuel 26, verses 6 through 12. So David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah, who will go down with me to the camp of Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon him. Now, if you were in David's camp on that day, or if you were with David as he went down to the place of Saul, you would think that this was the golden opportunity. I mean, the only thing that stood between David and the throne of Israel was Saul dying. And now... Seemingly providentially, Saul is literally laying asleep with a spear next to him. And Abishai's like, dude, this is the, this is the opportunity. This is your chance. And I love it. Abishai says, I'll only strike him once. I won't strike him a second time. It's like, does that make it better? Like, I'm going to kill him one time, but I won't, I won't strike him twice. And then David makes the most fascinating statement. He says, the Lord forbid that I should put my hand out against the Lord's anointed. And we would say, but David, you are the Lord's anointed. I mean, God has rejected Saul. God God has turned his favor away from Saul. You've had the anointing since a young boy. You're supposed to be the king. David, this is your chance. But David knew a principle, that God's will must be done God's way. See, he says, it's it's almost like he's just going, something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. He, he, he'll die in battle or the Lord will strike him or his day will come, but, but something's going to happen. But when it happens, it's going to be the hand of God and not the hand of David. Can I tell you what freedom there is to live in such a way that when you look at your life and the, the grace and the blessings and the favor that you've received, you know that you've received him from the Lord. So many guys I know are they're trying to climb that corporate ladder and they're, they're knocking people off along the way and they're kicking doors in and they're going, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it and I'm going to go get it. And, I'm gonna, and there's nothing wrong with ambition. David was a driven man, but his drivenness, his ambition was submitted to the Lord. And he knew when my time comes, it's going to be God's doing and not my own. Again, several years ago when, when my wife and I were uh, living first in Orlando and not yet with kids, um, we, we didn't have kids, and we didn't have money, and, and that's kind of how that went, and we were going on a little, like, weekend vacation. I think we were going to St. Augustine, and so we uh, fill up the, you know, the car with gas, kind of the whole routine, you know, you're getting out of town, and then we swing through the ATM, and I didn't know exactly how much I had, but I knew I had probably somewhere between, like, $100 and $200 in my, in my bank account, and so I put in the, the debit card, and I asked for $100 back. Now, you know what bills come out of an ATM, right? 20s, right? Well, when I put the debit card in, I punch in my PIN number, and a $100 bill comes out, and then another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. And so instead of 520s, I get 500 So instead of $100, I have $500, and I'm like, man, 
we can totally upgrade from a La Quinta to a, to a Hilton. Like, this is our lucky day. You know, we're going to be, we're going to be eating at Olive Garden. Like, we're going to be living it up, you know. Um, but that moment, you know, briefly passed through my mind. And then the next thought was, I don't have $500 in my account. That's not my money, right? And it wasn't even really a conversation. We just knew. We we're like, oh, man, could you imagine? But we can't, we can't hang on to it. We, we swing back through the, 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 the bank, the SunTrust, and tell her. We tell her what happened. You know, hey, you know, we asked for 100 It gave us 500 and give it back. She's like, okay, thanks. And she gives us 100 And I'll be honest, I kind of hoped that she'd be like, man, you are so honest. I'm just going to let you keep the money. Um, but it didn't play out like that. And it doesn't always play out like that. And in David's case, God didn't immediately strike Saul dead. He had to continue waiting. But he waited with a clear conscience, and he waited knowing that God's hand was still upon him because he was acting with integrity and righteousness. See, it's not worth trading that in. It is better to fail the test than to cheat and pass. It's, it's better to lose the job than to compromise and advance. It's, it's better to be in a marriage that's, that's tough and that's problematic and that you're praying to God every day for than to bail out and take the easy road. See, it's better to wait than to step into what you desire, but do it against the will of God. Don't take things into your own hands. And third and finally is this, don't lose faith. While you're waiting, don't lose faith. As I told you, best estimates have David being anointed between the ages of 10 and 15. He's probably 14 or 15 when he kills Goliath. And then he's 30 years old when he finally gets the throne of Israel which means that anywhere from 15 to 20 years pass where David is waiting. And we read these stories, and they take up a few pages of the Bible, but for David, the story took day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. He didn't get to know the end of the story before it was written. He just had to live it, and so do you. And so David waits patiently for his moment to come. And by the way, many of those years he spends running for his life. Why? why? Why does God allow us to endure the seasons of waiting? I think there's a reason. I think it's because during the waiting, God is testing and refining and readying us for the purposes he has for us. I mean, we're the fast food generation. Like, we expect things to come quickly. If I order it on Amazon today, I want it there tomorrow, free. Don't charge me. Don't take two days. Free tomorrow. That's how we think. And in a lot of our lives, we can do that. But in the spiritual life, we can't. Because that's not how God operates. God finds purpose in the waiting, in the testing, in the refining. In fact, all through Scripture you see this principle. So you've got a guy named Abraham who is already an old man. is told he's going to be the father of many nations. He's, in fact, so old that his wife literally laughs out loud. And God says, you know what? Because of that, your son's name is going to be Isaac, which means he laughs. God says, I'm, I'm going I'm to do something that literally you're going to laugh at. You're going to think there's no way. And I'm not even going to do it in nine months. You're already too old, Abraham. And by the way, your wife is too old and has always been barren. I mean, the odds are completely stacked against these guys. And then God waits. And he waits. And he waits. And Abraham turns 80 while he's waiting. And Abraham turns 90 while he's waiting. And Abraham turns 100 while he's waiting. And then one day, a little baby cries. You say, man, why, why does God do that? Why, why so long? 
And then you look at a guy named Joseph who, who is a young man. He's living in a home where his father loves him, but it's created a situation where his siblings hate him. And to make matters worse, his dad has gotten him like an Armani suit that he didn't get for any of the other brothers. And Joseph's just flaunting it. And then one day, Joseph has a dream. And you know, I've, I've learned, I learned this in marriage. Sometimes it's just better not to say everything you're thinking or everything that's on your mind, right? And so Joseph has this dream. He's like, I'm going to tell my family about it. But the problem is that the dream is that the stars and the moon and the sun are bowing down to him. And he's like, I think I know what this means. I think it means all of you guys are one day going to bow down to me. Well, now even his dad is like, dude, you know, shrink the head, get it together. You know, you've, I've really created a monster here, right? But his brothers take it way worse. They're like, not a chance this is ever going to happen. And they, they, they start to hate Joseph. And so if you know the story, they end up selling him into slavery. From there, he's falsely accused and ends up in prison. From there, he, he helps a guy get out of prison and says, just remember me before Pharaoh. And the guy just forgets. The scripture says he just forgot. Can you imagine? He just literally forgot. And Joseph is languishing in a prison. And then one day, in answer to a dream that Pharaoh has, he's made the second most powerful man in the world. The Israelites, same thing. God says to Moses, he says, hey, you're going to be the deliverer. You're going to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt, and they're going to make their way into a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And so Moses is thinking, okay, like, if you say it, let's go. But he goes before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says no, and a plague has to come. And then he goes again, and Pharaoh says no again, another plague has to come. And ten times back and forth this happens because God is waiting and then all of a sudden, they break out of Egypt, and you think, okay, great, now we're in the fast lane to get to the promised land, but that's not what happens. Instead, 40 years pass before the first Israelite steps foot into the promised land. And if you were to drop in on any of these stories, the, the story of Abraham, or the story of Joseph, or the story of the Israelites, or even the story of David, or maybe the story of where you are right now, if you were to drop into the middle of it, you would look at it and go, man, I think God's promise failed. People who are anointed king of Israel don't hide in caves. People who have been told they're going to be the father of many nations don't turn a hundred and not have a kid. And yet God is faithful. He's patient. He's continuing his plans and his purpose if we will not give up faith, not lose faith. David continued as he ran for his life and waited for the throne. He continued to write psalms. And if you've ever read any of the Psalms, you know that David is a pretty frank guy. I mean, he's just like, puts it all out there with God. He asks questions like why and how long. But David also never lost faith. In fact, uh, even as he's running for his life, he's continuing to write Psalms of worship. One of those is in Psalm 57, verses 1 through 3. And this particular Psalm is actually written from inside of a cave. I don't know if, if David lit a match or what, something that he could write on, but he's literally hiding in one of these caves. And this is what... David says, Psalm 57, 1 through 3. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. See, David knew that even though everything in his circumstances right now didn't look like God would, that God, in fact, would fulfill his purpose. God will, he said three times. God will, God will, God will. He never lost faith. When I was 15 years old, 
growing up in a Christian home, I remember one of the guys that worked with our, our students at the time, he was new, he was a 20-something-year-old young guy, and he said, hey, Chris, what's kind of the spiritual temperature of your youth group? I said, I mean, to be honest with you, myself included, I think we're all just kind of okay with doing life, and we don't want to get too hung up on all the Christian stuff, right? Like, we're good kids, we don't get in trouble, we get grades, whatever it is, um, that's just kind of where we're at. And he said, okay. And Ed started a Bible study in my home, which sometimes when God wants to get your attention, he just plants it right there, right? And my brother started learning the guitar and leading worship, and we started kind of doing this Bible study thing, and something started happening in my heart. Uh, it was different than what I'd experienced in church. Some of you that are in these house churches, you know that there's kind of a different experience, right? When you gather in the home, there's an intimacy, and so this was starting to happen, and, and that was the summer, I'm 15 years old, that was the summer that God really began to get a hold of my heart. And I wasn't anymore Chris, the good Christian kid. I was Chris, the follower of Jesus that had big dreams for how God could use him. And, and even as early as 15 and 16 and 17, I, I remember having dreams of going, man, what would it be like if, if I could actually like preach the gospel with my whole life? Like what, what if I could be a part of a movement where, where churches are planted and, and people are saved and discipled and, like, and I just get to invest and, and, and God opens doors and what would it be like to experience that? And then I waited and there were tough years and there were years of anxiousness and loneliness and, and really in a lot of ways 20 years down the road now, I'm just starting to step into some of those dreams that I had as a 15-year-old. The same thing happened with my, my desire for marriage, I knew uh, from a young age that I was not somebody that needed to go unmarried, and, and I needed to, to have a wife and wanted to have a wife. And yet, a couple relationships and didn't work out, and I graduated college, and then several years started happening, and I was as single as they get. I, I told the guys earlier, like, I would go on a blind date every other year, and that was the extent of my dating life. It was, it was not looking good. And to make matters worse, I ended up at 26 years old moving into my dad's house in my hometown, which is... Sebring, Florida, I won't get into all that, but not a place you'd expect to find a person to marry. And I, January of 2008, I just remember saying, Lord, and I don't remember if I was thinking about the David and Jonathan thing, but I just knew, I said, God, I need either like a best friend that's here. All my friends are in Indiana, California, Georgia. They're all spread out now. I need, I need like a f best friend or even better, I need a wife. And Lord, you know my desire, you know my need. And then I waited month after month after month even then and it was October of 2008 that I met Nikki on a blind date, of all things. And now 10 years later, I look at what God has done, and we have three awesome children. And, and she's been an incredible marriage partner, and we're stepping into things together. And, and I look at the, the harvest that God is starting to bring about from those seeds that we planted years ago. And the, the dreams that God gave me, the promises that I feel like were spoken over me years ago. And I waited, and I thought, man, it just doesn't look like it's going that way. And for some of you, you're going, man, I'm ready to break down. I, I, I felt at one time like God was in this. At one time, I felt like God was going to have me go that direction. But I've been waiting so long, I'm just ready to give up. And I'm just asking you, don't give up. The waiting is worth it. A song that my wife and I have been clinging to and, and listening to on repeat, in fact, my kids as well, um, is a song by Hillsong Worship. I think one of the songs we sang earlier was a Hillsong uh, song. And the song is called Seasons. And it just so, so perfectly describes what we're talking about. I, I want to read some of the lyrics and then I'll make a couple comments and, and, and we'll close. But I want you to hear these lyrics 
from the song Seasons. This is what it says. I can see the promise and I can see the future. You're the God of seasons. I'm just in the winter. If all I know of harvest is that it's worth my patience, then if you're not done working, God, I'm not done waiting. You can see my promise even in the winter because you're the God of greatness even in a manger. For all I know of seasons is that you take your time. You could have saved us in a second. Instead, you sent a child. Now, I love that last lyric because think about this. Adam and Eve eat of the fruit in the garden and fall into sin. And immediately there's shame and there's brokenness. And then they have children and one of their kids kills the other kid. And there's more brokenness. And then a man named Noah builds a boat and a flood covers the earth. And then a man named Abraham is sent from everything he knows to everything he doesn't know. And then a man named Joseph is imprisoned. And then a man named Moses is leading the people through a desert. And then the prophets come along. And and all of them with one refrain are saying, Lord, when will you come? When will redemption be here? And thousands of years of human history pass. And God is waiting and cultivating and tilling the soil and planting the seeds and being patient for the harvest. Until finally, in a little town of Bethlehem, a baby's cry pierces the night sky. And God shows up in human form. And even then, we continue to wait. Till he turns 10, he turns 20, he turns 30. He endures persecution, mockery, rejection, conflict. And then finally, at the age of 33, he stretches his hands out on a cross and shouts, It is finished. You just think, man, after thousands of years of waiting, wouldn't you think that God would just break in and set it all straight? But he doesn't. He sends a baby. He plants a seed. And the baby born in Bethlehem becomes the man at Calvary who brings salvation to the whole world. And if you looked at Jesus' life anywhere along the way, including when he's being whipped and beaten and mocked and spit upon and his beard being plucked from his face and a crown of thorns and he's, he's... beaten beyond recognition. He's got nails in his hands and his feet. You think, God, your promise is failing, but that's when God's promise was being fulfilled. And so we wait, and we don't lose hope, and we don't give up on our faith, because God does not give up on us. I'm not sure what today that you're waiting for. I'm not sure what it is you're wrestling with God on, but it's likely for all of us that there is something. There's something we just go, man, it's just It's just not quite here yet. And I'm here to tell you, hang in there. God is faithful. Can I pray with you? Father, thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to just open your word this morning. God, thanks for the life of a man named David. He wasn't a a superhero. He didn't have supernatural powers, uh, but he did have faith. And he did have the courage to walk out his faith in a really difficult season. And God, I remember seasons in my life that that were so hard and so taxing and so uh, filled with doubt and and anxiousness. And God, there's got to be in a room this size some who are in that season right now. And yet, God, they're here. Because even if their faith is that of a mustard seed, they've got enough faith to to show up and say, God, I'm going to come one more day. I'm going to come and worship. I'm going to come and gather with other believers. I'm going to come because I'm hanging by a thread, but God, you are holding on to me. God, I pray that you would renew their faith today. 
God, would you restore within them the joy of their salvation and the hope of promise fulfilled. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.